You ain't heard nothing yet. Get around, let me know. What am I going to do? Frankly, my dear, I'm going to make him an offer. You talking to me? Are you not entertained? I don't know who you are. Why so sick? When I'm good, I'm very good. Simple. But when I'm bad, I'm better. He's the Call me Mr. Boy's best friend. This is my boy. You have no style. You can bark all day, little dog. Everyone! Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. Hello, and welcome back to the Tinsel Factory. My name is Caitlin, and I'm your host. Hope everybody had a great week. I got to do an escape room for the first time in two years, so at least some things are still normalish, despite the fact that all LA people have got to be masked again. At least inside. This week on Two Sentence Movie Reviews of movies I saw in a movie theater that, let's be honest, usually aren't two sentences, we've got Pig. Yes, that Nicolas Cage movie that's out. This movie is pretty on par with everything Nicolas Cage has done over the last 10-15 years. It's weird, but this one's actually pretty good. It's very indie, so if you're more of a romantic comedy kind of person, you might want to skip this one. Like, I spent nine-tenths of this movie wishing he would just go wash his face. Like, more than anything, this movie is a is an ad for washing your face. But it's pretty good. If you like indie movies, if you like weird movies, you'll like Pig. Anyway, another month has come to an end, y'all. This week we'll be covering a lesser-known feud, but one that was between two pretty big names, Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. During the shooting of the film Guys and Dolls, these two consistently butted heads and argued with each other. So that's what we're going to talk about today. With that, let's take our places. It's showtime. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck, if you've ever been a lady to begin with, luck be a lady tonight. Francis Albert Sinatra was born December 12, 1915, in Hoboken, New Jersey, to a boxer fireman and a midwife interpreter, possible secret abortion giver. His mother, Dolly, would oft be cited as the source for Frank's drive as an adult. In addition to all their other jobs, Frank's parents also owned a tavern where the youngster would spend much of his time doing homework and sometimes singing for spare change. The lanky teen would soon develop a bigger interest in music, especially when it came to big band jazz. One thing Frank had no use for was higher learning, and he was expelled from high school having only attended 47 days and was expelled for general rowdiness. This good Italian boy, however, then enrolled in a business school program to please his mother, but left that after 11 months. After that, Frank did a number of odd jobs, including stints as a newspaper delivery boy and as a riveter. In his free time, he performed in local Hoboken social clubs, such as the Cat's Meow and the Comedy Club, and sang for free on radio stations throughout New Jersey. 
He later moved to New York, where he found jobs singing for his supper and cigarettes. To improve his speech, he began taking elocution lessons for a dollar each from vocal coach John Quinlan, who was one of the first people to notice his impressive vocal range. At the age of 20, Frank received his first big break in the business when he joined the group Three Flashes. This break occurred because Frank had a car and not because of his impressive oral proclivities. With Frank, their newest member, Three became Four and the Three Flashes became the Hoboken Four. They auditioned for the Major Bose Comedy Hour, kind of an American Idol-esque show but for the radio, and won the competition with 40,000 votes. The prize was a six-month touring contract with radio appearances peppered in. Frank soon became the group's lead singer and, much to the jealousy of his fellow group members, garnered most of the attention from the ladies. Being in the Hoboken Four gave Frank a taste of the limelight, but the big time was not achieved as a member of this group. In March 1939, saxophone player Frank Main, whom Frank knew from the Jersey City radio circuit, arranged for him to audition and record the song Our Love, which became Frank's first studio recording. Three months later, Frank was offered and signed a two-year contract with band leader Harry James for $75 a week after a show at the Paramount Theater in New York. His close friend, Hank Santacola, persuaded him to stay with the group longer than he wanted to, but in November 1939, he left Harry James to replace Jack Leonard as the lead singer of the Tommy Dorsey Band. The new job paid twice as much as well. Tommy Dorsey would become a father figure to Frank, and in his first year alone with the band, Frank recorded over 40 singles. His first chart topper came out of this time, Polka Dots and Moonbeams. Frank stayed with the band until 1942, when he decided to strike out on his own as a solo artist. He needed to be better than Bing Crosby, and Frank had also told his friends he was going to be so famous a singer that no one would ever be able to touch him. This split was not as easy as his prior musical breakup, however, as he was hampered by his contract with Dorsey, which gave Dorsey 43% of Frank's lifetime earnings in the entertainment industry. You can tell whom had the better lawyer when all that went down. A legal battle ensued and was eventually settled in August 1942. On September 3rd, 1942, Dorsey bade well to Frank, reportedly saying as he left, quote, I hope you fall flat on your ass. He did anything but. Before he'd even left the Tommy Dorsey band, Frank Sinatra had already gained quite a lot of attention with the Bobby Soxers, the name for teenage girls of the 1940s. He'd also made his film debut in 1941's Las Vegas Nights, though that role was uncredited. Frank's popularity made it easy for him to find a home as a solo artist, and he was soon picked up by Columbia in 1943. After World War II, of which he couldn't enlist due to a perforated eardrum that had occurred 
when he was born. In 1945 and 1946 alone, Frank sang on 160 radio shows, recorded 36 times, and shot four films. By 1946, he was performing on stage up to 45 times a week, singing up to 100 songs daily, and earning up to $93,000 a week, which is almost $1.3 million today. MGM was the film company that turned the crooner into a double threat. Frank appeared opposite Gene Kelly in the musical Anchors Away in 1945, in which he played a sailor on leave in Hollywood for four days. The film was a major success and garnered several Academy Award wins and nominations. Frank co-starred again with Gene Kelly in the musical Take Me Out to the Ball Game in 1949, which was set in 1908, and the two played baseball players who were also part-time vaudevillians. He teamed up with Kelly for a third time in On the Town, which was also in 1949, playing sailors on leave in New York City. Despite all of this work and the money he was making, by 1950, Frank's career had hit kind of a slump, so much so that he had to borrow money from Columbia to pay his taxes. The film rules had dried up as well. Rejected by Hollywood, Frank searched for acceptance in the desert. Las Vegas, to be more specific. He began performing in nightclubs for a few years until Hollywood eventually pulled him back in. Frank starred in From Here to Eternity, which released in 1953, alongside Burt Lancaster and Montgomery Cliff. The trio played three soldiers who were stationed in Hawaii in the months leading up to Pearl Harbor. Frank was desperate to find a film role which would bring him back into the apex of the spotlight, and Columbia Pictures boss Harry Cohn had been inundated by appeals from people across Hollywood to give Sinatra a chance to star as Maggio in the film. After several years of critical and commercial decline, Frank won the Oscar for Best Supporting Actor for his work in From Here to Eternity. This win helped him regain his position as a big-time actor and also the top recording artist in the world. Marlon Brando Jr. was born April 3, 1924, in Omaha, Nebraska, the youngest child and only son of a pesticide and chemical feed manufacturer and an actress. Marlon was not raised in a terribly happy home. His father was quite critical, according to the future actor, and his mother was a well-documented alcoholic. The couple divorced when Marlon Jr. was 11, and his mother Dottie took her children to Santa Ana, California. Dottie and her husband would reconcile, and the family returned to Illinois, which was where Marlon Sr.'s job had taken him. Marlon Jr. was a natural mimic, showing from an early age an ability to absorb the mannerisms of the children he played with and display those mannerisms back theatrically. Childhood friend George England recalled in the TCM biography Brando the Documentary that Marlon's earliest acting was imitating the cows and horses on the family farm as a way to distract his mother from drinking. Like Frank Sinatra, 
Marland would be expelled from school as well, though he made it much longer down the educational pathway. Marland then worked as a ditch digger as a summer job arranged by his father. He tried to enlist in the army, but his induction physical revealed that a football injury he had sustained at a military school he'd attended after being expelled from his last school for riding his motorcycle in the halls had left him with a trick knee. Marlin may be the most famous of the acting Brandos, but he was not the first. His two elder sisters were living in New York pursuing acting. Marlin followed them there to begin studying acting as well as he'd enjoyed appearing in the plays at school. Marlon Brando is probably one of, if not the most famous pupil of the Stella Adler Acting Academy, which taught the Stanislavski method of acting. For those of you listeners who've never had to sit through an acting class, this is a technique of acting which encourages the actor to explore both internal and external aspects of their lives to fully realize the character they're supposed to be portraying. It's very nuanced. One day down the line, we'll get into it. When Marlon was studying there, Stella was immediately taken by his natural proclivities to acting and understanding the nuance of character. So it's no surprise that Marlon would start his professional career on the stage with his Broadway debut being 1944's I Remember Mama. After three years working pretty steadily on stage, Hollywood eventually came knocking for Marlon. He did a screen test for Rebel Without a Cause, though a different version than the one famously released 11 years later. Marlon's first film role wouldn't be for another three years in the 1950 film The Men. Marlon played a paraplegic soldier, and to prepare for the role, he spent a month in bed at a Van Nuys, California military hospital. Marlon would be the first actor to bring a natural approach to acting on film. According to Dustin Hoffman in his masterclass, Marlon would often talk to cameramen and fellow actors about their weekends, even after the director would call action. Once Brando felt he could deliver the dialogue as natural as that conversation, he would start the scene. Marlon's first big film role was in 1951's A Streetcar Named Desire, a role he'd originated on Broadway in 1947. The film would earn Marlon his first Oscar nomination. Then, in 1954, he starred in On the Waterfront, a film about union violence and corruption among longshoremen. The film would earn Marlon his first Oscar win, and despite some derision from critics, Marlon Brando started 1955 as the biggest box office draw in the United States. So, it's like early 1955. We've got two hotshots. Mr. Frank Sinatra on a second career wave, and Mr. Marlon Brando on his first. I know, let's put them in a movie together. Luck be a lady tonight. Luck be a lady tonight. Lucky if you've ever been a lady to begin with. Luck be a lady tonight. Now, if you have any familiarity with Broadway musicals or ever went to high school in the United States, mine put on this show in my freshman year, I think, you've probably got a passing knowledge of the musical Guys and Dolls. It's one of the major musicals in the American songbook. The film adaptation, however, 
is far less known, despite the fact that it stars two of the biggest movie stars of the era, Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando. Well, part of that may be due to the fact that the two absolutely despise each other while they were filming the movie. When the film was coming together in 1954 as Samuel Goldwyn Productions, Marlon Brando was the biggest box office name in the United States by a pretty big margin. Big Dog gets big parts. In this case, it was that of Sky Masterson, a risk-loving gambler. Frank Sinatra had been pursuing that role for himself for years and was not happy that it was given to Marlon. Frank had also previously lost a role he'd wanted in On the Waterfront to Marlon as well. Frank was cast as Nathan Detroit instead, another gambler whom is trying to put on an unlicensed crap game and tries to bet Sky Masterson into dating a woman to get the $1,000 he needs to put on the game. Nathan Detroit is the main supporting role in the film. From the sounds of it, things were never super kosher on set. When Marlon approached Frank to work on their musical numbers together, a bitter Frank spurned him and that method acting crap. Marlon famously did not like being called a method actor, which was not a secret at the time and probably ticked him off a little bit. Also, Frank was known throughout his career for refusing to rehearse and hated to do more than one take. Quote, I don't buy this take and retake jazz. The key to good acting on screen is spontaneity, and there's something you lose a little with each take. Marlon's approach, however, was to discover something new with each take, working up to the character's rhythms and emotions. Given the way the two started their professional acting careers, these two different methods aren't surprising but it did cause a lot of contention. Hollywood critic James Bacon even quotes Frank Sinatra in his book, Pictures Will Talk, with Frank telling director Joseph Mankiewicz, quote, when Mumbles is through rehearsing, I'll come out. Mumbles was Frank's nickname for Marlon. Also, slight problem, Marlon wasn't a professional singer, something Frank was super critical of at every single turn. At the first break of this episode, you heard Frank singing Luck Be a Lady, and at the second one, you heard Marlon. You don't need to be a musical-trained individual to hear the difference in skill. There's no question, Frank is a better singer. And Marlon agreed with the fact that he wasn't born with a set of golden pipes, admitting that his singing voice was reminiscent of a hormonal yak. His words, not mine. Marlon had to spend so many hours in the recording studio to get his songs just right. And in the end, his voice was patched together from countless retakes for playback during shooting. He would later write in his autobiography that, quote, They sewed my words together on one song so tightly that when I mouthed it in front of the camera, I nearly asphyxiated myself because I couldn't breathe while trying to synchronize my lips. Now, don't think for a second that Marlon was a punching bag by any means, and eventually that dude got his comeuppance while filming a scene where the two characters meet in a restaurant. In the scene, Nathan, aka Frank Sinatra, eats a slice of cheesecake. The story goes that Marlon intentionally messed up his lines for fun for eight 
consecutive takes just to watch Frank eat eight slices of cheesecake to the point where Frank was both very angry and very sick. When the ninth attempt was scrapped, Frank threw his plate to the ground, jammed his fork into the table, and screamed at director Minkowitz, quote, these fucking New York actors, how much cheesecake do you think I can eat? The next day of shooting, Marlon said all of the lines immaculately. Marlon also mocked Frank over his receding hairline. Quote, Frank's the kind of guy when he dies, he's going to heaven and give God a bad time for making him bald. The Guys and Dolls set was eventually divided between Team Brando and Team Sinatra. Team Brando included director Joseph Mankiewicz, so I'm guessing Marlon probably had a slight edge, though Frank did have a whole, like, entourage with him on set, so who knows. It eventually reached a point where the two would only speak to each other through intermediaries. Mankiewicz was probably Team Brando due to the way Frank acted when he realized how much smaller his role was when compared to Marlon's. Frank reportedly let his jealousy show, too. Quote, Sinatra was snotty and very difficult as he really didn't want to do the role. Our Vidi Abernathy portrayer Regis Toomey later said, quote, he can be cruel and disagreeable. Joe had an awfully hard time on that picture. Frank also refused to perform his one ballad, Adelaide, in character. Nathan Detroit had a Bronx accent, and instead, Frank crooned it up real big. Composer Frank Lozier was also less than pleased with the star's turn in the comic Sue Me number. Quote, we'll do it my way or you can fuck off, Frank reportedly told Lozier. When Marlon pointed out to Mankiewicz that he should tell Sinatra how to sing his songs, quote, we can't have two romantic leads, Brando allegedly said, Mankiewicz refused. And Brando swore to never work with him again, and he didn't. In 1959, Frank would say his role in Guys and Dolls was the only one he was ever disappointed with. Quote, I wanted to play Masterson. I mean, nothing disparaging about Marlon Brando, but Masterson didn't fit him and he knew it. Well, maybe Frank wouldn't have been disappointed if he hadn't acted like such a twat on set. Because Marlon's digs on Frank were more subtle in comparison, Samuel Goldwyn was actually quite pleased with Marlon's behavior on screen and off, so much so that he rewarded Marlon with a brand new white Thunderbird, which Marlon immediately began racing around the streets. In return, Marlon went against his usual practice and agreed to do substantial publicity for guys and dolls. However, his good intentions were short-lived, and after some initial appearances on behalf of the film, he eventually refused to do anything else, stating, quote, I've done enough for that white Thunderbird. At the end of the day, the film got made, got good reviews, it was nominated for four Oscars, winning none. It was also the highest grossing film of 1956, even though it released in 1955. Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando, however, never worked together again. I would be interested to hear. Offhand, would you say that Mindy sells more cheesecake or more strudel? Going strictly by my own personal preference, I'd say more cheesecake than strudel. For how much? What? For how much? Why, Nathan? 
I never knew you to lay money on the line. You always take your bite off the top. A thousand bucks says that yesterday Mindy sold more strudel than cheesecake. Nathan, let me tell you a story. Have we got a bet? On the day when I left home to make my way in the world, my daddy took me to one side. Son, my daddy says to me, I am sorry I'm not able to bankroll you to a very large start but not having the necessary letters to get you rolling. Instead, I'm going to stake you to some very valuable advice. One of these days in your travels, a guy is going to show you a brand new deck of cards on which the seal is not yet broken. Then this guy is going to offer to bet you that he can make the jack of spades jump out of this brand new deck of cards and squirt cider in your ear. But son, you do not accept this bet because as sure as you stand there, you're going to wind up with an ear full of cider. Now, Nathan, I do not suggest that you have been clocking Mindy's cheesecake. Would I do such a thing? However, if you are really looking for some action, I will bet you the same 1,000 that you cannot name the color tie you have on. Someday, we'll do a deeper dive into these two actors' careers. But for the sake of this, I'm going to blow through the latter parts of their career because I like giving y'all an idea of when this happened within the scope of their careers, but it's not necessary for this episode. Frank acted for several more years, and after acting in the poorly reviewed comic western Dirty Dingus McGee in 1970, you think the name would have been a warning enough? Frank didn't act again in film for seven years. He returned with a made-for-TV cops and mob guys thriller contract on Cherry Street in 1977, which he also produced. Frank returned to the big screen in the first Deadly Sin in 1980, once again playing a New York detective. The role was a fitting swan song to his career as a leading man. Frank made one more appearance on the big screen with a cameo in Cannonball Run 2 in 1984 and a final acting performance in an episode of Magnum P.I. in 1987. He remained a major recording star throughout his life, though not always with Columbia. Frank moved to Capitol Records in 1954, but had a falling out with them in the early 1960s. Then Frank went to Reprise, where he remained until 1981. In the 70s and 80s, Frank was a member of the Rat Pack, a group of artists that performed together and appeared in films like Ocean's Eleven. Frank was in ill health for much of his later years and passed away on May 14, 1998, at the age of 82. He was laid to rest next to his parents. Like Frank, Marlon had a very long career as well. He continued to enjoy box office success until the mid-1960s. By then, Marlon had had several children, and at least 11 total in his whole life, and began viewing acting as a way to make ends meet rather than an art form. By the end of the 60s and throughout the majority of the 70s, Marlon Brando no longer meant box office golds. There were exceptions, of course— Marlon played the iconic Don Corleone in The Godfather, a role he had to fight for, alongside Francis Ford Coppola, the director, and also appeared in the film Last Tango in Paris. He won an Oscar for his role in Godfather, but famously rejected it, asking Native American actress Sashin Littlefeather to deliver a speech on his behalf rejecting the award. These were his last two major film roles. He had appeared in projects here or there, including Apocalypse Now in 1979, but never again at the levels he enjoyed in the 1950s. 
By the end of his life, Marlon had several health issues, most of them stemming from his alarming weight gain in the 1970s. He passed away on July 1st, 2004, at the age of 80. Frank Sinatra and Marlon Brando are two men whose work and names still have heavy influence on the cultural zeitgeist as a whole. Frank, a legendary crooner, and Marlon, the broody young man in a white tea screaming Stella, or as the older Don Corleone. But for a brief moment of time, the two fought it out like two 14-year-old girls on a film set for a film that most people have forgotten even exists. And now the end is near And so I face the final curtain My friend, I'll say it clear I'll state my case Of which I'm certain I've lived a life that's full I traveled each and every highway And more, much more than this I did it my way And that's going to do it for this week. If there's anything you'd like me to cover in the future, please reach out on social media where I also post photos for each episode at Tinsel Factory Pod on Instagram, on Facebook at the Tinsel Factory. And if you have any questions, you can always email me at tinselfactorypod at gmail.com. I am an independent podcast, so I'm completely reliant on the algorithms. So if you could please rate, review, and subscribe so that other people can find this podcast, that would be a huge help. In order to keep making the podcast, I've also set up a support page, the link of which you can find in the show notes. If you can help out in any way, I would very much appreciate it. I've also got merch. Check it out at the link in the show notes. I am taking next week off as my little sister is turning 30 next week. Or technically, I guess this week. But the week after that, we're going on the road and looking at some of the histories of Asian cinema. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, that's a wrap.